And that's our, our text as we're working through Joshua. I thought it'd be fitting for a, a biological and spiritual mother uh, to many to do the scripture reading today. So, Kirsten. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests stood, and to carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua, and they carried them over with them to their camp, where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. Now the priests who carried the ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people, just as Moses had directed Joshua. The people hurried over, and as soon as all of them had crossed, the ark of the Lord and the priests came to the other side while the people watched. The men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over armed in front of the Israelites, as Moses had directed them. About 40,000 armed for battle crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for war. That day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they revered him all the days of his life, just as they had revered Moses. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests carrying the Ark of the Testimony to come up out of the Jordan, So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. And the priests came up out of the river, carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage as before. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, What do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. This is the word of God.
Thank you so much, Kirsten. I was, uh, I was thinking about a time back when I had first become a follower of Christ, and I was happening to live in, uh, in Europe at, at the time, and a handful of us, it was kind of my first retreat with, with a youth group, were going uh, off the coast of, of Spain to uh, Ibiza, and it was really exciting. Um, it, was, it was springtime, there were several hundred of us, and we got on a, a boat that was going to take us to the island. It's an hour and a half trip to get to the island, but there was a, a raging storm that was brewing, and we ended up riding about 20-foot waves, and it was so super cool for like the first 15 minutes, and then people started getting sick, and it wasn't very fun after that, especially since we lost an engine, uh, a window broke. It took nine hours for us to get to the, uh, to the, the destination. The good news about that is the boat behind us took 14 hours, so we, we made pretty good time getting there. Um, the, the day after, when all the waves were kind of coming up on the coral and, you know, as teenagers will, we were exploring. Uh, a couple of girls were taken into the ocean, actually, um, uh, severely lacerated, bobbing up and down, getting perilously close to a place where the waters converged against the rocks and they could envision what might happen if, in fact, that, that was the case. Um, they were yelling at us not to, to, to jump in. One of my best friends did jump in after them. Uh, he was one of the best cross-country runners in, in the school, but his uh, feet were severely gouged by the, the coral a, as a result of this, and, and he couldn't uh, run for quite a while after that, too. Um, he was one of many who jumped in to try to bring them back to safety, and eventually they were able uh, to get there. At the same time, on the island, and when I think about this as a parent or a somebody in charge. It's horrific, you know, uh, because at the same time, some kids had rented some scooters. One of them uh, fell on his leg uh, coming around the corner, and he had to be uh, medevaced out, and his leg was amputated. And this, was all, this was all in the same day when we finally had gotten there after this rigorous trial, just arriving at the destination, which was a fun time for everybody supposed to be. And, you know, I, what when you're a teenager, don't you have this idea that you're going to live forever? I mean, most people have this sense of invincibility. It's not going to happen to me. And when you experience something like that, it kind of shakes your foundation and begins to make you think more about life and, and death and uh, the meaning of life. And somebody can tell you, hey, you got to think about these things. But until it happens to you in that moment, it seems kind of a distant reality. And it was all brought to the fore for those of us who were on that trip. And I saw more people come to faith in Christ on that trip than I ever have before. Because <laughs> teenagers were confronted with their mortality. And for so many people, that was a defining moment in life, a marker that I would suspect still today there are others who were on that trip who can look back on that and say something happened on that trip. And for so many, it meant that they started a relationship of walking with God. In this text, in Joshua chapter 4, there's something kind of similar going on because what we see is that the people of God have finally, after 500 years of anticipation, and then this generation, 40 years of wandering in the desert, gotten to the point where they're crossing over into the promised land, but there's something in the way, the Jordan River. 
In the Jordan River, according to some commentators at this point, a flood stage could be as big as a mile wide at some points with all the thorns and thistles and brush as well. It's a pretty significant barrier to getting to the place where God said, I am taking you, I have promised, and this is the moment now. And as you read the text, you saw that those waters uh, uh, built up and the, and the ground was dry and they crossed over into the promised land. And it was a defining moment for the people of God, a moment that was codified, put into God's word, and is a defining moment for us to look back on. And these stones that were piled up together were to serve as a memorial, a, a marker of this exact experience. And so this passage, multiple times we see, is all about remembering God in the defining moments, and especially the defining moments of life. There's redemptive history, God's unfolding of his plan, that's right here that we see a very significant defining moment that's for all of us. And we saw in Joshua chapter 3 that there's a sense not just of chronological time, but also of kairos, this Greek concept of God's appointed time. You know, Christ came in the kairos at God's appointed time. This is happening at an appointed time. And it's, it's a public event. It's not uh, repeated. It's, it's certainly unique. And yet it serves as a memorial that this is the kind of thing God does. There's public evidence in that pile of stones, but there's a private experience that each of those people who passed through had an encounter with God, and they need to remember. So there's common and shared experiences, but private and personal defining moments as well. And this passage invites us to reflect on both. Remember uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Eric referencing a quote, there is no panic in heaven. I don't know if you were here and remember that. I thought that was so great. There's no panic in heaven. What a contrast to when things seem insurmountable to us. But no. And it, it occurs to me too, as we read this text, and it kind of slows us down, that there's actually no rush either in God's timing. There's no panic in heaven, and there's no rush in God's timing, these waters are separated. They're piling up. We saw miles, miles back. And God is kind of slowing everybody down, saying, take some time, grab some rocks, put up a memorial. And depending on what text you read, it, it looks as if there were two memorials, one that was set up at a point where they could uh, linger and they were camping, another right in the middle of the river itself. And I don't know, for me, I think if I were going through and you put yourself back in that story, there'd be the sense of, of kind of rushing to get across because you don't know if the waters are going to close at any time. That would be a little unsettling. But even so, the destination's right over there. Let's go. Let's get it on. Let's move to the next thing. We're armed for war. Let's do this thing. And God slows them all down. Stop. Put up a memorial. Take time to think, to reflect on what I've done. Oh, and by the way, go get circumcised in, in, in Joshua chapter 5. That, that, that's not what you do to prepare for war. That's painful. These are grown men. And this is how you're getting ready? And then when we see Jericho you know, march around the city, God is doing things in his own time. And, and part of the story of, of faith 
is waiting for that and being patient with God's timing and trusting in the faithfulness of God 500 years and it's finally here. 500 years. Hebrews chapter 11, as so many of you know, so many of those people never saw in their own lifetime what God had promised to come about. You feel like you've been waiting a long time? 500 years and they're finally here. And there just doesn't seem to be any rush. I'd be wanting to get on with it. But he slows everything down. Stop. Memorialize. Reflect. Think. And there are defining moments in life that force us to do that. Strangely, I enjoy funerals. That seems like a macabre thing to say. I think Solomon did too. He mentions this in the book of Ecclesiastes because just like that trip to Ibiza, it makes me stop and think what matters most in life. It's usually when I come back from funerals, I hold my wife a little more tightly. I, I, I say, I'm going to be a better dad. <laughs> I'm going to appreciate who my wife is as a mom. I'm going to start thinking about the things that really matter because otherwise life gets to be a rush. And we live mostly in that moment where we're just doing the regular things, but we stop and think when events happen. And it gives us a reframing of understanding what is going on here. And God uses these circumstances, these defining moments, to remind us of who we are and who he is and who we are in relationship to him. And stop, think, put up a memorial. And that's a general observation from this passage, but the author, in this case, is remarkably clear about the purpose of these stones. It's so refreshing and helpful for somebody giving a message when the author says, hey, this is what this passage is about. And he says it several times here. Um, just to remind you, we already read it, but to give you an idea of what he says, looking specifically at just a few of these verses, uh, this is from the middle of the text close to verse 6. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Now tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. And then later, he said to the Israelites, in the future, again, when your descendants ask their fathers, what do these stone mean, stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you'd crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. So we're not really left wondering what this passage is about. It is a sign to God what he's done, who he is. And that sign is not just for the people passing. It's for the next generation. And it's for the entire world. Didn't know this was a missionary text. Right here in Joshua chapter 4. So let's think about this sign just for a little bit because he says multiple times this is a sign for the next generation. That's part of why this passage exists. Here, memorialize this moment. 
So that when, in the future when people ask, what is this about? Now, I'm guessing a handful of you remember 9-11. You remember that, uh, that day, probably where you were. And maybe if you put yourself back into it, what you were feeling. And I don't know, I mean, those of us who were in the States, some of you I know weren't in the United States that day. I don't know what your experience was like there. But for those of us gathered here, it was, you know, a, a moment that's etched in our minds. And you, you can just remember where you were, how you heard it, what you saw, how you felt. Like, what's next? Are, are we next? Is this what's happening? Are people you're loved or separated from loved ones, how are they going to get home? And so that event, there, there, uh, it was an awful day. But then after, you know, things kind of started normalizing just a bit, what was the, what's the, the thing you think of with 9-11? Don't forget, right? Or you remember, don't, don't forget. So New York Police, Fire Department, everything, don't forget. And we put up a memorial. Has anyone been to the memorial in New York City? Okay, some of you have as well. And maybe when you do that, you kind of, it's sobering, right? You think back to that time and you, you reflect on what happened and maybe you're back in the moment. But if you didn't experience that, some of you here are probably too young to remember that. And it's old people like us who say, I remember when 9-11 happened. And you're like, you guys are just old. I don't remember that at all. But we tell you about it, right? We say life was different before. Here's how things have changed. That was a defining moment in the nation and in some ways in the world. And these are stories we tell to the next generation, to our children. And we say, you know, you go to the airport, it used to be like this. I mean, can you remember? I just remember people coming right off the plane and there you were. It was like uh, easy to get in there too. It was so different. So if your children feel like you missed out on something, there's probably a defining moment in your life as well that's happened, say, like last March when the world shut down with the pandemic. And it's not just in relationship to the United States, it's to the world. You talk about a defining moment when the entire globe experienced something in common. And I would argue and suggest that, that part of what God is saying is here is I'm the author of heaven and earth. I can control all of these things. And I am doing this as a testimony, not just to my people, but to everyone, that he uses all of these things in a way that is calling us to turn to him in those defining moments and find that the only hope and strength that we might have apart from ourselves is in God. And when we come to the end of our rope, we can't do it anymore. There's a God who's designed us to be in relationship with him, who dwells from eternity for all generations to come and all generations to pass. And our time here is just but a moment. And he gives us memorials. And some of those are more, more official memorials. And we'll see even today some of that coming out in this text. But I would suggest that God, who is the God of history, gives us defining moments in our lives designed to recognize that he is powerful and that he is the Lord of heaven and earth and that he is the one your soul has been designed to be in relationship with. So your moments in life, though they may not be the same and they're not put into God's word like this, the defining moments are there for a reason. They're there for a purpose. 
Part of it is a sign to this next generation here we've seen. We have those signs in the New Testament as well. Baptism is one, a sign of the renewal of life that comes when you're in relationship with God because of what Christ himself has done. But the one that seems to be more in view here too is the Lord's Supper, communion. When, when we celebrate communion and Jesus gave it to his disciples, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Remember, remind yourselves of a defining moment when the Son of God, who we sang about earlier, hung on a cross for the sins of the world so that those who trust in him could be in relationship with him and be reminded when they forget that God is for them that it was sealed with his body given for us, purchased by the blood spilled for us. Because guess what? We forget. We're forgetful people. And so God memorializes things. He's like, you're going to forget, so put these stones up so you don't. Because when you come back, you'll remember. And he's given us a sign just like that in communion. We, we thrive and need these kinds of signs. I have one around my finger. It's a wedding ring. And when I look at this and when I do weddings, I say, you know, this is supposed to be a sign so that everybody, when they see it, remembers that you belong to someone else, not to them, that this is what it's about. You're entering into a covenant relationship with someone else. And it's a sign, not just to you, but to everybody, off limits. I am my beloved's, my beloved is mine. Kids, you know, I would say this is a great time on, on Mother's Day maybe. Ask your mom, how, how did you and dad get together? You know, like what, have you heard that story? This is a sign not just for them, but for the future generations, our, our children as well, what this looks like, what it means, how it happened. How did you get here? You know, when we celebrate communion, and I'm going to make sure we try to get the kids back here, because I've seen this happen before. When it's a sign for future generations, these kids come along, they say, hey, mom and dad, what are those stones for? Can we go crawl on them or whatever? Wait, wait, no, let's talk about it. And when we serve communion, and in our case, we have a kind of a modified version of it here and now too, but with bread and juice, and it passes over some of the children, they'll say, I want some of that bread. Now, this is not bread that anybody's competing for right now. But, but at, you know, when we have the hot, fresh baked bread, and Vera has made this amazing, you know, from scratch bread, and it's passing by, kids are like, I want some of that. I mean, just, it looks awesome too, but you're just generally hungry. Why can't I have that? This, I've seen this happen. Mom, Dad, why can't, can I take some? And that's, a, that's exactly what's happening here. Why are these stones here? This is a memorial and an opportunity for parents to say, let me tell you when you can take this, why you can take this, why I take this. So I love having kids here to see that and experience it and to prepare themselves perhaps to taste it. If, you're, if your kids are in that situation at all, we've, we have a kids membership manual, actually. And one of the final uh, chapters before we get to the church of membership is all, all about sacraments, signs, symbols, and seals. There's a stop sign, a dollar sign, a recycle sign. These are signs that point to some other realities. And so your relationship, your your worship 
is an opportunity, just like in Deuteronomy 6. You know, tie these symbols around, uh, put them all around your house so that you're constantly in conversation about these things. It's a sign to the next generation. It's also a sign of his presence. And we've discussed this as well. 17 times in these two chapters, 3 and 4, the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned. That was a sign, the Ark of the Covenant, of God's presence with his people. It's gone ahead of them. The water's parted. They pass by. It's behind them. That's where these stones are being piled up if it's in the middle of the river as well. God's presence is there. It's a, a physical representation of something that's real. I am with you. The precious promise has been repeated multiple times in this passage. And you know, we remember a significant event or a defining moment. It provides evidence that God is with us in those moments. I look back in my own life and see turning points. And I look back to remember that God was there so that I don't doubt that he'll be with me now. Even when I can't see or feel his presence. Those, those moments, the Bible is a lot of remembering back. Remember when I was with you in this moment, because at, at the present time, maybe you don't sense that. I, you know, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity has this great quote when he's, or actually it's the screw tape letters when he's talking about a patient, which would be a Christian, is, you know, uh, the, the, the cause of the demons is the greatest peril if he can look around and see no evidence of God whatsoever and still cry out to him and trust that he's there, that he is with me, that he is present. And some of us maybe wonder, is God really with me? Even if you're a believer, if you're someone who said, I've, I've taken that step of saying, yes, I trust in Christ, but I don't, I don't sense his presence now. I look around, I can't see it at all. You might be wondering, is he really here? Because, I mean, look, you kind of feel like, where's the parting water for me? <laughs> you know? I mean, where, where is this experience for me with this dramatic encounter where God has made everything so clear? What am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to marry? Mary Lucas, Quinn, up in the sky. And we feel like maybe God has abandoned us. It's, it's possible you feel that way. Of course, if you felt abandoned by God, you're not alone. The difference, of course, is that on the cross where Christ died and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was real. It was true. Because of sin, that it, to me this is the most theologically astounding concept. The Trinitarian fellowship dwelling in perfect harmony, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on that moment when Christ took on sin and God literally forsook his son, could not be in the presence of sin. And Christ said, why have you forsaken me? Why are you gone? Why aren't you with me? And he heard silence, because he was gone. The agony and the pain endured for three days. The separation of the eternal fellowship, it's, it, it's, it's mind-blowing, but can you imagine the pain and agony of Christ himself? As the Apostles' Creed said, descended into hell. Three days. But then we know he rose again from the dead. He conquered death. And that, that sweet communion was the best of all reunions it possibly could be. As Christ broke the barrier of death and was reunited with 
his father. And for three days he endured the pain and separation. Why? So that you would never have to. So that in the moment when you say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You can look across at the cross of Christ and say, though I may feel that way, I know I am not. Because only Christ himself truly was. And so he's the one who understands, who empathizes with us in our weakness. He knows how he feels, but he really experienced the abandonment of God. Why? So that he could be with us. It's Christ himself who said, I am with you always until next Sunday when you go to church again. No. To the end of the age. To future generate, I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. I will never forsake you. And though the Ark of the Covenant kind of loses its way, what it represents, the sign of God's presence with his people, is sealed by the blood of Christ, and you will never truly know abandonment if you're a son or a daughter of God today. If you're not, you won't know that. I mean, this is why the gospel, the good news of Christ, is so great. But there's another side to it. Christ comes, he rescues us, he brings us into relationship with God. But standing on your own merit, you're just like Christ was on the cross, filled with sin. And you won't stand before him. But you long to know the presence of God. You want to be in a relationship and communion with him. And perhaps a defining moment even for today is that memorial where we say yes, There's no missing stone here. Each of the tribes represented. And if God is hounding you and pursuing you, then perhaps you're one of his children as well. And he'll pursue you. He'll leave the 99 for you. I know he's doing that. The, The offer of the gospel is free. You're hearing it today. It's for you. God with you. But you can only know that if you trust and believe what Christ himself has already done. That's it. The deal has been sealed. And here's the testimony. Here's the memorial. His shed blood, his body given for you. He is with us. And that's what's happening for these people. They need a sign of his presence moving forward. But it's not just a sign of his presence. We also saw it's a sign of his power. In verse 7, we see that the flow of the Jordan was cut off. When they say, what happened here? Well, the flow of the Jordan was cut off. And in verse 24, this happens so that everybody will know he is powerful. And and that sign of his power leads to, to reverence as well. So this is the Jordan River, a picture of the Jordan River. At one of the places where it's raging just a, a, a bit more. And again, if it was at flood stage, probably would have been a bit dirtier. And even perhaps wider as well. And can you imagine that just stopping up, clearing away, and it's dry? Probably small by comparison to the Red Sea. So this is a sign of God's power, his, his power over creation. And when I was toppling around in that in that boat riding 20 foot waves wondering for the first time if I was actually going to die God wasn't panicking he wasn't rushing it reminds you doesn't of of Jesus and the seasoned sailors when they're off in the water too and they're like we're gonna die and Jesus is sleeping on a cushion he's taking a nap and they realize when he gets up and he speaks to the water And it's still. 
They're a little undone. They kind of fear what's happening. They're like, who's in the boat with us? They realize it's God. He's in the boat. This guy can speak and still. I can tell you, if somebody, some sailor had said, hey, uh, be still to the waters that day and still, talk about revival. (laughs) We'd have been like, who in the world is this guy? That's who Jesus was. The signs of his power, Jesus came showing signs of power, validating who he was and what he did. This is the one who has power over nature, over the spiritual realm, over sin, over death. And when I look at this passage and I see God is with us, you know, the ark 17 times, but he's also powerful and it it brings out, as verse 24 says, a sense of reverence. It's so that you can revere him. There's this tension in, in, in the Bible that we see in the scriptures, I think is beautiful between God's transcendence, his power, his awesomeness. He always has been. He always will be. And you can't trifle with him. He's a consuming fire. And his imminence. He's drawn near to us. He is a shepherd. He knows you by name. He created you. He knows every hair on your head. And you can come to him. They're, they're both together. It, you know, we can't treat either lightly. Some people just do this to God, like, hey, buddy, buddy. No, don't poke a lion. He's to be feared. And yet he says, call me dad. You know, he even, he has, even has enough sense of identity to be compared to a mother in Isaiah. He's a loving parent. He's both. And you see that in a text like this. He's powerful. He, you you got to revere you have to set a memorial, and he's also with you. He's your God. He's there with you in the midst of everything. And this is a sign not only to them, but to all people. As we saw again at the end of the passage. To all people that he is the one true God. God unveils his character not just to a particular group, but to all kinds of people everywhere. And that's significant. Some people think that the Old Testament is just for the Israelites, but that's not the case at all. God has a missionary heart from the beginning back in Genesis 12. I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and make these promises that are going to come about now as we cross the Jordan so that you can be a blessing to everybody through you. It's no surprise then when his son comes. And you know that great verse that everybody knows. He used to be at all the football games. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. A sign for all people, lift it up. God is on mission pursuing people from all over back then just as he is now. He's not a regional God. He doesn't have to follow COVID protocols. He can get to anyone, get anywhere he wants. And it seems to me, as I look at my own life in the scriptures, that oftentimes he'll do that in defining moments. Defining moments in redemptive history, but in your life as well. Those moments when, for a sense, maybe you get that there's something more to life than what I'm currently experiencing. There is. That moment has come for a reason. It makes me think of Isaiah, you know, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near, before the waters rise. Those defining moments are there designed for you 
Because these signs that we have all around us are simply pointers to a deep, deeper reality. That's what all signs are. They're, if you see a sign, or even just take a picture of Mount Everest. If I were to show you a picture of Mount Everest, have you climbed the mountain just by looking at it? It's a sign pointing you, maybe even in the right direction to it, but you've got to go. You have to follow that sign to where it's pointing. You know, base camp that way. You know, I, go, I did it. No, you didn't. You actually have to walk there in your base camp and you start experiencing all the craziness that comes along with it, along with the exhilaration of accomplishment. And this is the same thing. You have signs all around you that there is a God. And the creation screams out that this is the case, even defining moments in your life when perhaps for the first time you wonder, is there something more? But you, the signs are not the things themselves. They're just pointing to a deeper reality, to the substance. And these pile of stones point to God's presence, his power. There is a testimony to all nations. It's a defining moment, but it's not the thing itself. The thing itself comes, we're told, when you believe in that, when you trust in that. That's why we tell the next generation, this isn't just for me. I can tell you what God's done in my life, but what about you? It's for you, too. That sign is for a reality to be experienced. And the Bible tells us the substance of all of this is found in the person of Christ. And Colossians 2.17 says, these are a shadow of the things to come. One of those being like the Sabbath, they're pointing forward. The substance, the reality is found in Christ. All these things, these memorials are just pointing to something that's real and true and can be for you as well. The substance, the reality is Christ. And I, those defining moments become opportunities then for us to attach ourselves to something that's enduring and to someone who knows every aspect of who we are. Peter reinforces this, and this is such a beautiful passage to consider in light of the stones that have been piled up by these people. How do we make this experience for ourselves come alive? Well, Peter is, is writing to these people who are scattered around, and he says this, as you come to him, the living stone, Christ himself is the living stone. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. You are the memorial. If you are a follower of God and you are a son or a daughter, you're a living stone. You're the walking memorial to people filled with the Spirit of God being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. Here's the good news, you're not the cornerstone. Christ himself is. He is the foundation. We're, little, we're stones being piled on top of him. He is the one true foundation. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him, your missionary, right? The praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you were not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What rich language that Peter uses, hearkening back to Joshua chapter 4 and these stones that are set up. So what, 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 what I hope you hear today is that God is using defining moments in your life to call you to remember his presence and his power, or if you've not experienced that yet, to do so for the first time. Don't waste the opportunities of the defining moments of your life because you don't know if they're going to come again. And God's been gracious to you. You're here, you're alive, you're breathing, you're, you're listening, or you stopped listening. But maybe since I said you stopped listening, you're listening now. And he might be calling you, you know, to, to himself today. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Respond. Say, God, I, I see I need you. And I, I know this needs to be a memorial, a day when I say yes to Christ. I stop fighting against it. I mean, we come to the end. These people are going to realize it. it's God alone who can fight these battles as much as they prepare themselves for war. And when they stop remembering, then they start relying on themselves, and it all ends up very poorly. This memorial is a call to remember. Don't forget God's presence and God's power. Father, I pray for my own hearts today. How easily I forget. And then you give us opportunities to look back signs of your presence and your power in our lives that are gifts to us to remember so that we find strength in the present. And there's, there's time dynamics at work in this passage as well. Remember what happened back at the Red Sea. Look in the past. When you see this memorial, look back even a generation ago to what God did. But you remember in the present right now that he's a living God, as Joshua 3 said, and he's still at work in this moment, and that goes on for every moment that we experience. And yet there's a forward-looking part to it as well. This is for future generations. This is for the next generation. And we pray today that we would see all of those timelines coalescing, not only in the event of Joshua's chapter 3 and 4, but this morning as we celebrate communion and we look back and proclaim the Lord's death, we say that he's here presently in the moment to draw strength, but we proclaim his death until he comes again at some point in the future. There's a lot happening at this table, this table of fellowship which we call communion. And I do pray that even as kids come back, perhaps today they'll say, can I have some of that? What does this mean? Can I take it? How do I get prepared for it? And it's a great opportunity for a mom or a dad or whoever to be able to say, well, let me tell you what this means and why I take it. So we look forward to celebrating communion with each other and thank you for your presence here in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.